If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. And once you get that Bible, open it up to Matthew 25. We're in Matthew 25 as we continue verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the Word of God. We'll pick it up in verse 14 today. Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. Excuse me. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. To each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he would receive the five talents, went and traded with them, and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. Now, after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you rule over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you rule over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, here, or look, there, you have what is yours. But the Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seeds. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, you would have received back, I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore, take the talent from him. And give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given. And he who will have an, he will have an abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Boy, isn't that just a good, feel-good story? couple weeks before Christmas. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, would you please? Lord, we know all your word is true. And here in this time now that you have ordained for us to take in your word, I trust, Lord, you are going to do an amazing work. God, you are so, so good. And Lord, we have come today not to be tickled, not to have be massaged into some form of false comfort, but Lord, to be challenged, to be equipped, to be 
spread in a way, Lord, to be groomed in a way, Lord, to be of greater service to you, to be equipped and challenged and, and to be buffered, Lord, in the manner in which we can then be greater servants, that we can look more like you. So God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would have his transforming work in each of us today. Not just that we would be informed, but transformed, reformed, and made in a way, Lord, that would look like you. So with that said, Lord, we beg you now to captivate us in your word and to speak to more than just our ears and more than just our minds. But Lord, grab a hold of our hearts. And Lord, in doing so, Lord, may we in great joy and for the love of you be transformed and really let this infiltrate, knit its way, weave its way into our being. So Lord, we commit every second of this to you. Be glorified in it, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be your final saying. The kingdom of heaven is used for what it's worth 32 times in the Bible, the term the kingdom of heaven. Of the 32 times that it is used, 32 of them appear in the Gospel of Matthew, which means if you're going to look for the term the kingdom of heaven, you're only going to find it in the Gospel of Matthew. It started, by the way, back in chapter 3, verse 2, when John the Baptist told us to repent because the kingdom of heaven literally is within reach. By the next chapter, 417, Jesus will actually say the same message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is is at hand. By chapter 10, verse 17, the disciples then will go out and say the same message, repent for the kingdom of heaven. It's within your reach. It's not something far away you have to build a a castle to. It's not something you have to strive and fight for. The kingdom of heaven is coming to you, and it's within your grasp. Well, who is it that obtains such a kingdom? Well, it tells us, by the way, in chapter 5, as Jesus has just transformed a group of people, perhaps even thousands, that were possessed, paralyzed, powerless. He told us, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He also told us, blessed not only are the poor in spirit, but also the persecuted for righteousness' sake for they also have claim to the kingdom of heaven. He tells us that there is a, if you will, a pecking order, a least and a greatest in the kingdom. He tells us that in 519. And those will be sitting with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in chapter 811. But that greatness will only be found in sacrifice and in service to people. Well, to God by serving people. Not in some form of personal ladder climbing. He told us that our righteousness must exceed the scribes and the Pharisees in 5.20 or we won't even enter. And he tells us that not everyone who even says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. I believe that's 7.21. And we see here someone claiming Lord that is cast not just to darkness and not just to outer darkness, but to the outer darkness, as it says here. It tells us only those who do God's will, the Father's will, will actually inherit the kingdom of heaven. Or enter. It tells us in chapter 11, verse 12, that the kingdom of heaven suffers violence since John the Baptist. And then he goes to give us seven parables in chapter 13. Soils and tares and mustard seeds and leaven and treasures hidden in the field. Pearls. Dragnets. But by chapter 18, the boys now have grabbed a hold of this lesser and greater thing and have started to ask, who are the greatest? Who is? Not just are, but is, as if they individually 
is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus then pulls a child in front of them, tells them, you aren't even going to enter unless you're humble and have a a true and genuine faith like this child. Then he starts to tell us what it looks like when this thing culminates. In chapter 19, he tells us the kingdom of heaven is like a king who starts to settle accounts or a hiring landowner who then settles accounts with his vineyard workers in chapter 20. In chapter 22, it's a king who arranged a wedding for his prince. And then chapter 25, as Jesus speaks and starts to culminate the idea of a faithful and good servant, a wise servant, he goes to this area of virgins. Uh, Ten of them, in essence, five wise, five foolish. And I remind you, the word wise is not Sophia, but the word phroneros, the word for thinking or conscientious, thoughtful, if you will. And that takes us to our text here. It is important to note that Jesus has been building a comparison since chapter 24 when he told us about the wise servant and faithful servant who is watching for his master's return and holds things in proper account. But then there's also the evil servant as well. Both, by the way, are called servants. And yet, not all of the servants get the same commendation. There are those we read here will spend their time doing the master's business and there will those who will spend their time bashing other Christians and eating and drinking with the partiers. He says that's what they'll be known for, is, if you will, their tolerance to the world and their intolerance to other Christians. For which he calls, by the way, evil servants. And he contrasts then that wise and foolish or wise and evil with those virgins that were serving the master with his bride. And then we get to this, where it is the three servants now serving the master with his goods. And I have to be honest, obviously from initial looking at this, this is a rough, it's a rough text. It's a rough text because basically a guy, I mean, if we're just going to put it in layman's terms, a guy has some money, he's going to go, so he hands it to three guys and he gives them money and they're all supposed to go and do something with it. They're supposed to make money. So he comes and calls them back. Two of them do so, for which they get commendated and then, or commended. And then one comes back and he really didn't do anything with it. And instead he goes and sends them out to go get killed. And you start to think, wow, this is pretty harsh. Especially when the guy's like, I knew you were a harsh and, if you will, sort of a rotten guy. And, And then he's like, so you knew I was a rotten guy, so let me just proven I'm going to kill you and you're like wow this is the kingdom of heaven how does that work and then I started to look at this and I started the problem is because I think in sort of paragraphs perhaps like yourself I start to disconnect this from the rest of the text and when I start to disconnect this from the rest of the text I forgot that the last thing that was happening was ten virgins that served the bride will serve the master by serving the bride it was people that were being served in this service And the moment I put that into the equation, this thing sort of blew wide up on me, and the whole thing changed for me. Look at it with me for a moment. By the way, let's start with this. The kingdom of heaven. Remember that me saying 32 times it's listed? This is the 32nd time it's listed. In other words, this is the last time you read the kingdom of heaven at all. And I remind you, it's the first book of the New Testament. We'll read kingdom of God and so forth. But it's the last time you read the term kingdom of heaven. And it's important to note from the beginning, this is not a business where you have many bosses. It's not a democracy where we have many votes. There is a king who reigns, and you are going to be accountable to him, like it or not. He has an eternal throne, says Psalm 45. That throne, by the way, has only one foundation, and that's righteousness and justice, according to Psalm 89 and elsewhere. But the thing that profoundly affects me as I think about him on his throne is in that same Psalm 45, where it tells us that 
righteousness. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. And let me start with that and we'll get into our text about these three guys. Now, we may not understand a term like scepter of righteousness. I mean, it just sounds like, you know, the kind of thing you just might add kind of right up there with the pick of awesomeness and, you know, whatever, and the shoelace of destiny. But it's so much more than that. And we get this, to be honest, from the book of Esther. Because in the book of Esther, perhaps you're familiar with the story, there was a girl who has to approach the king unannounced. And understand, even as the bride of the king, she couldn't just pop into the king while he's on his throne. She, like every other person, to keep order and to keep the king safe, has to approach, the, you know, get permission, if you will, and then stand and put her life in danger. And she even makes that clear that her life is in danger to approach him. And when he is sitting on the throne, and if somebody shows up at his throne room, he, in his hand, holds his scepter. And he has one of two motions to do, in essence, for the bodyguards that are in his room. It's very simple, and it's a way to make sure that the king's not threatened. When the person approaches... Before he's anywhere near the king, the king either extends his scepter or he retracts his scepter. If he retracts his scepter, what that says is that I show no favor to this individual. Kill him before he gets to me. And wouldn't that be nice if we had such a symbol here? Because I don't want you killing anyone when they come into the, the building. But if he extends his scepter, what he is saying is he's opening up the throne to this person and they are welcome then to him. They have a clear shot to him and he trusts them, for which, of course, in the story of Esther, he does. He offers them the scepter of righteousness, which is, of course, a good part of the story. Otherwise, the entire Jewish race would have ceased to exist and that would make things really complicated today. Now, the reason I say that is back in Psalm 45, it tells us your scepter is a scepter of righteousness continually. And the idea is, my king on the throne is constantly extending his scepter, saying, you can come to me anytime you want. Now, I really like that. Now, you won't find that in any other religion, a king who reigns so profoundly, who has oversight over everything, but yet is still so willing to be with his subjects. And so we start with this. This king that we're going to be accountable for has a kingdom, and that kingdom is the kingdom of heaven. And that kingdom of heaven is like a man who's settling accounts here with three men that he's given responsibilities to. It tells us in this that he's going to travel to a far country, but he called his servants and delivered goods to them. We see that in verse 14. Now that tells us that the man has servants and the man has goods. In verse 15, it tells us that he gave five talents to one, another two, and another one. And of course, we start thinking talents. By the way, for what it's worth, the, the Greek word for this, the word talenton, is really where we get the word talent in the English language is actually from this parable, I'm told. So it's interesting how that kind of plays out. But a talent was a weight. It's important to know that. <laughs> we know that from the book of Exodus when we're told about building the uh, menorah, the lampstand, and it has to be one talent of pure gold. Now, for what it's worth, one talent is, in simplest sense, about 75 pounds or 34 kilograms. Now, there are, of course, a talent's going to vary in regards to Rome and in regards to Greece, but Jesus is speaking here and he's speaking to his disciples, and I'm wondering if he's using a Hebrew measurement or not. Regardless, you're still dealing with between 30 and 34 kilograms. So let's just go with the traditional talent on this for a second. So then I have to do the research which was a little bit more difficult because if you may not know, we've just moved my family and I over the weekend, which means we have no internet at the house. Nonetheless, I still was able to find the price of gold and silver, 
which of course is really fun because my window backs up. The window actually backs up to the street where I'm at. So here I am sitting at my little desk at the moment looking at the price of gold while people are... Anyways, it's weird. So the price of gold right now is for what it's worth, 30 uh, pounds. And that's, of course, it's confusing for me in that sense. 30 great British pounds per gram. Now, a kilogram, you're probably aware of, is 1,000 grams. So you have to put that together. That puts it at 30,000 pounds a kilogram. No. That puts, now we have to add that to 34 because there's 34 kilograms in a talent. And that puts us at about 1,020,000 pounds. But gold wasn't necessarily the national currency, the international currency. Silver was. Well, and that's going to make things at least not as expensive. Silver, for what it's worth at this moment, is about 45 pence a gram. So we start adding that, that we add the 1,000 to make it a kilogram, and then we add the 34 to make it a talent, and we get basically about 15,300 pounds. Now, if I've lost you with the math, pardon me for it, but just put this in mind. But let's just say for the moment we're going with silver because Jesus doesn't make it clear. What's obvious is someone's getting a big chunk of cash. So let's just say the guy who got one got 15 grand from his boss. The guy who got two then got 30. I think you got this out. Now, if we're going to sort of work this out, then we start going, wow. He gave them these things, but the important thing to be to me isn't really the issue of the talent because, to be honest, Jesus didn't develop it, so it must not have been the biggest issue. But notice this statement that's beyond it because it's the statement, by the way, that really starts to unwrap, unpack this for me. It tells us in verse 15 that he gave to each according to their own ability. You know what that tells me? That this master, this boss, knew his servants. He not only knew his servants, he knew their limitations. He knew their limitations enough to know how much a, a person could give. And I start to think about this as I start to look at it. Because, of course, the first place I would go when I think about giving more than you can handle is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, where we often quote this because we know that it tells us the Lord will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can handle, but will always provide a way of escape from it so that we can stand up from under it. So we always kind of go, well, I know this, the Lord's never going to give me more than I can handle. And we take that everywhere we can with it. The Lord's not going to give me more bills than I can handle or more craziness than I can handle. And, and you know, for some of us, that puts us in a crazy crisis because let's face it, some of us, man, our, our lives sometimes are really wacky. I mean, we start to look and go, wow, you're not going to give us. And, and there's a part of me that starts to think, wow, God, thank you. It's a weird thing because I'm like, my life's really weird right now. But somehow, as crazy as it is, you must know that I can handle this. So I guess it's a compliment that my life's kind of in turmoil like this. How weird is that? I mean, how weird of a dynamic is that approaching God going, God, thanks for all of the horrible things that are going on right now because you clearly have faith in me. You know? But if we really look at it, the bottom line is it's not just that he doesn't allow you know, greater grief than we can handle or more specifically greater temptation, but... He also doesn't give us greater things than we can handle, which tells me, by the way, that I think none of us, I can speak for myself, I don't think I've ever, ever, ever come close to reaching the potential God has ordained for me. I mean, that was a common thing I remember with school teachers. Of course, I was never really fond of a lot of my school teachers. And as a kid, I was a lot smarter because it was before I blew my brains out with drugs and stuff as a teen. But I always thought that I was smarter than half the students because I was a teenager. I thought that, like every teenager. Uh, but also because some of them, to be honest, had already blown their brains out with drugs, and so they really they were kind of drooling when they when they spoke, and they could barely sign their name, and they were on tenure, so they weren't going to get fired. Anyways, with all of that said, 
I just remember thinking about times like that and, and just going, oh, you know, I, I, I would start to write something and I kind of, well, I'd lose, kind of lose steam in the middle of it because I had something else to do with life. And the, the, I, the teachers would sit down and go, it's not that I want to give you an A or I want to give you a great passing grade because it really isn't about that. It's about the fact that you just have so much more potential than this and you're just not really putting forth the effort. I don't know what it's like when things kind of come easy and you just kind of go, well, what does it really take to kind of pass? What's crazy is when it came to things that were, that, uh, to be honest, were often destructive, I gave it everything. I went for it with everything. Uh, but when it came to things, to be honest, that really benefited me, I never gave much effort at all. And the worst part is when you don't give a lot of effort and you still get by, you start to think that, the, that life is a joke, don't you? And the reason I say that is, is that the master actually is not going to give me more that I can really handle. He gives only according to the ability. But here's the crazy part. In our case, as we apply it to the Lord, he's the one who gave us the ability. There's the weird part. So he gave me the ability to handle whatever he gives me, and then he gives me not more than I can handle. And he does this, in this situation, he gives it to the three guys. So he calls the guys forward. Now, I don't know, according to this, whether they're all in the same room or not. Maybe. I mean, we talk about biblical, anti-biblical, and extra-biblical. Biblical means it's clearly in Scripture. There's, it's a no-brainer. Anti-biblical, you can find the opposite in Scripture. In other words, it's clearly wrong because this is what the Bible says. Extra-biblical is the area in between. Like, how many wise men were there? According to Scripture, we don't have a number. Could be two guys, and I know it's plural. Could be 4,000 of them. We just know there were three kinds of gifts given. Now, forgive me for the confusing statement. The whole point of it is, is that there's this area in between. We don't know. When I play the scene out in my head, are they together, or is he bringing them in one by, t- one, by one? In my mind, they're, they're, they're together, and only because of the attitude I get from the third guy. But you can play it out whatever way you want. So forgive me if I walk you down my hallway for a moment. In my hallway, he calls the three guys out, and he goes, okay, this is basically what I have at the moment. I have, you know, I have, what is that, I have eight. Sorry, I have to do the math in my head. And today, that's a little harder than normal. Even simple things. So I have eight talents to give. So if you will, I have, if it was gold, it's like I have eight million pounds to give. So I'll tell you what, Bruno, here's five million. Go do well with it. Shmar, here's two million. Go do well with it. Deborah, here's a mill. Now here's the sad part. If I had given Deborah just a mill and not given anyone else anything, Deborah would have been like, awesome, i got a mill to work with. But it just doesn't seem so much now that Bruno got five. Well, nonetheless, he gives out these things and then he goes to a faraway country. That's what we read. He immediately does. He goes on his journey. Verse 16 tells us, by the way, that he would receive the five talents he went and traded with them. Do you see that in verse 16? Now, it's a, it's a fair rendering, but please understand, it's not the exact word. And the reason I say that is they're trying to... They, and I, I would never want to diss a translator because these guys are phenomenally led by God for what they have to translate. And they have to try to get us to understand the text because the word for what it's worth is the word ergatsumai. And ergatsumai means literally put it to work. They worked or, or worked on it. And mine, I say, the safest word may be they invested in it. And that's the word we have here. And we'll see it with all of them, by the way, or the, the two of the three. And so, so really, here's the idea. The guy that had five took this and he worked it. 
However he worked it, he spent time and he labored and he did something that really caused him to toil, to put forth great effort. But somehow in this great effort and in this sacrifice, fruit was born and he bore forth five more from this. So he may have started with, if we did gold just for fun, he may have started with five mil, but he wound up with ten mil by the time he was done. But understand, we don't read, by the way, the guy with two spent any more energy or less energy on his than the guy with five, because I remind you that the master gave according to their ability. And somehow he knew that in, case, in a case like this, that Bruno, if he put forth the effort, he was going to get, he was going to double his return Shamar was going to do the same thing, so we gave to them with the purpose. Apparently, the idea of the ability was the ability for it to bear the fourth a fruit, for it to actually double its, its value. That's kind of the idea. And it seems consistent here in that. So in verse 16, the guy with five does that. Verse 17, the guy likewise who had two did the same thing. So in both cases, their investment bore fruit, and apparently their fruit was doubling by the time it was done. It tells us in verse 18, now I'm going to remove Deborah from this equation because I don't want to pick on Deborah because this guy's not so cool and Deborah's very cool. So it says in verse 18, it says, but he who had received one and he went, and by the way, couldn't God just have said, this is Jesus, I remind you, telling this story. Couldn't he have just said the guy hid it? Did he have to tell us where? Why is that important? I think it's phenomenally important, to be honest, because he told us. He could have just said, he just tucked it away, nobody was going to see it, and then there you go. But instead, he tells us that he went and he took it and he, if you will, he buried it in the world. Did you notice that? He dug a hole in the ground, that's the world, and he buried it in the world. So there it was, where dead things are buried. Think about it. And there it was, buried like a corpse. There, in the ground. And it tells us that he went and dug, and he also makes clear that he hid, notice it says in verse 18, his Lord's money. This was never his, but it was given on loan, and because it was given on loan, he was to be responsible for what was loaned to him. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm a lot more careful with things loaned to me than things that I own myself. Because to be honest, I don't have a problem when something breaks going, oh, man, that was stupid. But I would rather not have to go to you and go, by the way, Bruno, I'm really sorry I broke your so-and-so. Which, by the way, I haven't. Let's just make that clear for them. He hasn't lent me anything, so we won't have it. Here's our point. Is that somewhere down the line, we have two guys that, according to their ability, went and worked their investment that they were given. This thing that was lent by the master by grace, and as it was lent by the master, the response was that they invested in it, and their investment bore forth fruit. But the third guy, clearly, though only given one talent, never really worked it like he could have. Somewhere down the line, he had an ability, but never really used it. Which means that the master gave him enough according to his ability, but it wasn't an issue of ability, it was an issue of willingness. And that willingness is going to be his problem and his downfall in the end because he just didn't have it. And then I read verse 19 and the whole thing starts to play out for me. In verse 19 it says, after a long time. No, he didn't have to tell us that either, did he? He could have just said the guy came back, but somehow he puts this segment of time in the middle of this thing. And then I start to think about this. A lot of time elapses you know what that does? And I started to wonder, 
that first maybe there was like this nasty conscience thing going on. You know, because I remind you, this is not, I mean, it's, it's a very radical difference between, well, let me say it this way, the wrong of not doing is a lot easier than getting used to doing something wrong. When you're doing something wrong, you kind of have to make the effort and you're like, oh man, okay, maybe I shouldn't do it and all you have to do is nothing to not do the wrong. But when it's something you're supposed to do, <clears throat> at the beginning of that, there's that conscience that goes, man, you really should get up off that couch and put down your Xbox or, or you know, stop binge watching that thing and get on this. You know, you should get off of that bed, get off of that couch. You know, the, the, your life is passing. You might even have to feel like you have anything at this moment to tend to. But you have things you will not have later. They're lent for whatever season you have them. And now is your season. This is it. And at the beginning, somewhere in your heart, you go, Oh, man, I really should get up and do something right now. I really should get on this investment. But as time goes on, you forget that this thing was handed to me to live out. And after a while, if I bury it far enough, I forget I had it at all. So maybe in the beginning of this, there's a part of me that, you know, you, you talk to the person, and maybe I'm a little edgy. I'm a little edgy because deep down inside, there's something in my spirit that's not right. And it's not right because I know that there's something I should be doing, but I'm not doing it. Now, if it's something that I want to do that's wrong and it's like an active thing, like the, we might say the difference between emission and omission, but in a case where it's something I want to do, I'll just be distracted. I won't even have time for you because I'm too busy planning this sin. But if it's over here and it's something I should be doing and I'm not, I'm kind of talking to you, but there's a part of me that's still in check going, man, I really should be getting this thing right. But then as time goes on, I learn how to bury that and I learn how to deal with it and I learn how to soothe my conscience with some kind of, well, what do I have to do to soothe my conscience? I have to talk to it. Now, that sounds weird, but let's be honest. Don't you do that? And you say things like, well, it's not really that bad. Or, well, okay, well, I really don't need to do that now. But somewhere down the line, you have to give an excuse to your conscience. Aren't we true with this? And somewhere down the line, do you know what this guy's excuse becomes? It becomes, the problem becomes the master himself. Did you notice that? His excuse was going to be his criticism of the master. He's going to get to this point where the anger and frustration and loathing that he feels, to be honest, for himself, for not doing what he's supposed to, is actually now have to be moved over to someone else because he knows he's in the wrong. Because he knows he's in the wrong, he has to take that and shove that somewhere else so to go, that's the problem. And if that thing was, if, you know, because that's what he's going to do here. He's going to say, you know, I knew you were this kind of person. I knew you were a hard person. I knew you were somebody that just wasn't fair or even ethical. I mean, you know, you're the problem, not me. Isn't that the truth? You're the problem. But God doesn't buy it for a second, nor does the master here. And the reason, and here's the sad part. All of this is happening because time is elapsing and he knows that he's supposed to be making this right and he's not. He knows that he's wrong, but he won't accept it. And because he won't accept that he's wrong, he's going to have to make somebody else wrong so that every time he feels that, he's going to have to give it to someone going to have to point it somewhere or it's going to sit with him. But it tells us after a long time. That long time tells me that by the time he comes back, and I remind you, Jesus since chapter 24 has told us to be watchful. 
Gregorejo, the idea of to be alert and attentive because the master is coming and don't you forget about this. At this point, I think this guy's completely forgotten about this thing altogether. So as time elapses now, your conscience is kind of a quiet issue now. What's crazy is at times like this, you start asking God for talk to talk about other areas. God, speak to me in this area or that area. And you just, you don't hear him anywhere. And the reason you don't hear him anywhere is because God's like, I've already talked to you. Like God said through Samuel to Saul, I already told you, Saul, in the, in the Old Testament, I told you to step off the throne. And if you haven't done that, why in the world am I going to talk to you about the Philistines? You've got a little battle you're fighting right now, but you have a much bigger battle that you are actually losing and you are refusing to let me win on. You're going to fight God and then ask him to jump on your side to fight some other little battle? Doesn't that sound a little strange? But it happens all the time and it destroys people all around them. And the crazy part is it destroys people all around them. And the more they get destroyed and the more that marriages get wrecked and the more that friendships get destroyed, the more that that same individual or same people or whatever will actually turn and blame it on them too. Because, that, because you can't get rid of, if you're the smoking gun, how do you get rid of that? Sometimes the nicest thing God can do at that moment is nail you like he nailed David. Well, Back in our story now, <clears throat> tells us that after a long series of time, the Lord of those servants came, look at verse 20, or 19, came to settle accounts with them. And I want to let you know, sooner or later, you're going to have to settle accounts. By the way, I'd like you to note, all three of them come to him. I mean, he's settling accounts, so that assumes I kind of get the picture that he's sitting down, kind of like a master would on his throne or a king would on his throne, because this is like the kingdom of heaven, and he's sort of sitting down, and as he's sitting down, these three guys are going to come in. And I assume maybe, I don't know if it's one of a time, traditionally I kind of get the idea here that they come, one comes in, gives his account, and, or they come in and they each give account in front of each other. I really don't know, again, you have to play that out however you see it, but I can say, this is what we read in the verse, at least the stuff we know is biblical. He would receive the five talents came in first. Now, whether it was because the, the king called him in or the master called him in in this order, or maybe he was just the most excited to come in. But he came in and again he starts with Lord. They'll all start with Lord, by the way. You delivered to me five talents. Look, I've gained five more beside them. The Lord's response, by the way, well done. The word there is good and faithful servant. Good is the word agathos. Agathos means, by the way, beneficial. It means someone who is of benefit to you. We might just say, what a blessing you are. And then faithful, pistos. It's the word that means trustworthy or dependable. Now let me ask you, is that the kind of person you want to be called to friends? Someone that they would say, you are such a benefit to my life. You are somebody that I depend on. Just, I trust you. The people that I call friends, it's genuinely the way I see them. And he says then, you are faithful over a few things. Isn't that interesting? I mean, a few things. At the very least, 15 grand. And he says, oh, you were faithful over a little. Well, in this case, actually, 15 members, just one. 
So I mean that's 30, 60, 75 grand. Because you were faithful with 75. Oh, you were faithful a little bit. Let me make you faithful over some really good stuff now. I'll make you rule over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. I'd like to make clear that the master here didn't just hire these guys and then sends them away with a reward. The reward was fellowship with a joyful master. And the idea here now of entering in is the idea, to be honest, of letting him stay permanently in the house. The idea of adopting them is his own. That's the idea of entering in here. So the true result of this, by the way, commendation, exaltation, and invitation. Commendation, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful. With little, I'll make you faithful. With much, that's exaltation. Enter into the joy of your Lord, that's invitation. So there's this guy. Now, verse 22, we read the second guy comes. He also had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents beside them. Did you notice the script was exactly the same except the number changed? But what's even more beautiful and profound, of course, is the script was the same for the Lord. Did you notice it says in verse 23, his Lord? I do really thankful that in both cases we read his Lord. Said to him, well done, good and faithful servant, all in the same terms. You have been faithful over a few things that will make you rule over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And again, commendation, exaltation, invitation. And what I love is that the man who had five, though he had gotten five more, let's go back to gold for easy, that's five more mil, if you will, didn't get any higher praise than the guy that, gave, that started with two mil and got two mil back. In both cases, the issue was not what he had, but the issue was what he did with it. Because what he had was given anyways. And I start to note in this, every servant is judged individually. Did you notice that? He could have just said, okay, let's see what we start with. We started with eight. Okay, we started with eight talents. What did we get as the result of it? Let's see, we got 10, 14. We got 14, 15 out of it. Hey, that's almost double. That's not bad. We did good for our return. But he judged every servant individually for a good reason. And now we see the third servant, and of course this is where the, mode, the whole mood changes. And he would receive the one talent, came and he said, Lord, and again, there's that Lord. I knew you to be a hard man. No, I really want to develop this quickly, but I want to do it for clarity. You are familiar with the fact that there are two words for to know in the Greek primarily. The, there's the word gnosko, and the word gnosko means to, to experience, to know by experience. You can tell me that something looks cold outside, but you walk out for a moment. Let's just play it out for fun for the moment. Daniel and I, we have the baptism coming up this Saturday. I know some of you are getting in the water with us. I'm really excited about that. We can look and say, well, that looks cold, but the moment we get in the water, we'll be able to tell you by experience. And this man says, I knew, there's Gnosko, I know by experience that you're a hard man. The word hard is the word scleros. We get the word sclerosis from it. It means unbendable. In other words, in the simplest sense, I knew personally that you were an unbendable character, reaping and gathering what you don't, where you, what you, was what you do, and your areas are areas you haven't sown or scattered seed. In short, I've known you to be an unbendable optimist. I'm sorry, opportunist, not optimist. I've known you to be the kind of guy that, man, if you had the chance to sink into it, well then, you're going to get it. You're going to sink your claws into it. But notice, there's an accusation in that. The accusation is, you know, I've known you not to be very fair. 
I've known you to be, I mean, doesn't this almost sound unethical and almost like a thief? I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. And there, there you have what is yours is not a kind statement made. Look, it's here. You should never have given me this in the first place. So here's my question. Is he saying I was afraid because you were such an unbending opportunist? What was he afraid of? Was he afraid of letting down the master? Or was he afraid of personal failure and taking risks? Do you see the difference? Because my question is, if everyone was given according to their ability, would it have been worse for him to give it a try, put forth all the effort, and get back nothing? Or would it have been worse for him to have never tried at all? I don't want to be the person who's known for doing nothing well. But you've got to hear me with your heart here, beloved, because I don't want to be just the only one getting rocked by this. God does not want us not doing things because we're afraid we will fail because the focus isn't on him anymore, it's on us. And if you remember this week, we've talked about the fact that what the devil really wants you to do is to think about you without God as the integral point of the equation. The moment you think about you without God in the equation, you are going to get someplace weird and you're never going to do what you should. And here you get the idea. This guy wasn't afraid of the master like he should have been in the sense of having a proper reverence. And he's like, look, if I knew you to be that kind of guy, I would, have done, I would have done at least something to try to keep you placated and happy. But it's like, look, and I was so afraid, to be honest, I was just focusing on myself. That's what he won't say. I was really afraid of failing. I was afraid of taking a risk because if I took a risk and I failed, I'd have to say to myself, you're a failure. And that's so much bigger than you. In other words, he had a greater fear of himself than he did of the master. Let's be honest. There's the problem. And because of this, we note that the servant's actually blaming the master. You know, if you weren't such a rough guy, I wouldn't have buried this in the first place. And you realize this is exactly what the devil wants to do. You're aware of what Jesus calls him. He calls him the tempter, the liar, and the accuser. Know that. The tempter, because he can't make you sin, but he can certainly talk you into it if, you, if you're willing to listen. And I've, li- I've learned this. If you sit down to listen to him for a moment, he'll give you the whole show. But he's not only a tempter, he's a liar. And not only is he a liar... He's the accuser of the brothers. So when you find someone and all they're doing is accusing, who do you think, whose mouth is that? Whose mouthpiece do you think they are being for? But if you take an accuser and you add a liar to it, well, that means he can accuse you of anything because he can make up whatever he wants. And then you take that and you put a tempter in it, what that means is he'll recruit you into that because what he'll do is tempting is he'll tempt you to embrace those lies and then turn that accusation into something to make you enemies with everyone else. You understand that's what the enemy does because he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. When you always go, well, if you're killed, why well, aren't you destroyed? Well, understand this. He comes to steal you, if you will, through lies. He comes to kill you, through, if you will, at that point. So he goes from, from lying, if you will, to, you know, to, or to tempting to steal you, and then, and then from there to lying to kill you, and then if he kills you through lies, well, the destroying is actually not even destroying you. You're already dead. Is to use you to destroy others. He comes to steal you away, destroy you, 
and then use you to destroy everything else. And how does he do that? He tempts, and then he lies, and then he accuses. And that's exactly where this guy is at. But notice he says, hey, this is yours, take it back. As brassy as the sunshine around us. Truth is, this thing that he was given was never his. And he's going to have to give it back. And truth is, everything that I have is not mine either. And I'll have to give it back. But the thing that I've been praying as I get to walk by the river now as I pray, is do I still have that risk it in my spirit? That place where I'm like, you know what? Let's just give it a try. It'd be worth a try. Or do I really need God to reinstall a go for it in my spirit? Because his response tells us that he's not, the master's response tells us he's not buying it for a second. We're almost done. Follow me on this. His Lord answered and said to him, you wicked. The word there is the word paneros. And paneros means, comes from the word panos, which means great pain. It literally means somebody that hurts people. And I get the idea here. And please understand, he could have used other words here, but the word he uses is a word, if you will, that in essence causes the master pain. And not just everyone else around him. He's like, don't you realize how much you hurt me? by? Because look at you're accusing him by doing so. And then the word lazy, for what it's worth there as well. Akneras. And akneras, if you will, means to be tardy or sluggish. It comes from a word that simply means, if you will, to be slow, hesitating. It's like, you know, you're saying that the problem is me, but the master's making it clear you need to know the problem is you, not me. But what I find really interesting is what his, is he says, he says, listen, you knew, and this was the part that was weird for me initially in verse 26, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Wait a minute. Well, you knew firsthand that I really was this unethical crook? You know, what's interesting is the word know here is actually the other word, idol. It's the word that means that's your perception. Now, it's unfortunate that we have an English language that isn't as concise or clear, or precise, I should say. See, that's already having problems with my own language. But please hear me in this. What the guy says is, I know firsthand about how rotten you are and how unethical you are and all this. And he goes, you know what? You've perceived this whole thing. You've never experienced it. You've never seen any of that stuff. All of this is what you've decided in your head. That's what the master is saying here. But you know this. If you talk to yourself long enough, you will believe everything you say. No matter how false and how wrong it is, you will believe every lie. And no matter what a person tries to do to talk to you, who are you going to listen to more, you or someone else? The problem is when you're listening to the enemy and then talking to you about it and saying, I just don't want to fail. I just, I'm afraid I don't do this well, but you've never done it. How do you know you don't do it well? Or I'm afraid I might, you know, I'm afraid I won't do it right or whatever. Well, how do you know? But is there a gopher in your spirit? Because the whole book of Acts is full of guys that just tried stuff and it didn't always work out, but God was always blessed by it because they were trying. I can tell you as a father, if my kids were just putting forth effort and trying something, I would be blessed by the fact they were putting in genuine effort. And I would be much more blessed by that than someone just going, well, you know, I, I don't want to do anything because I didn't want to do it wrong. Because there's just something about loving someone that you just want to do stuff. I risk it all the time with my wife. I mean, sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. But I think for the most part, she's blessed by knowing the effort's given. 
I'm like, hey, try this. I, I picked you up this thing. What do you think? And sometimes she's like, ooh, what's that going to do? That's not going to get in the house. And sometimes she's like, oh, that's really, really sweet. But ultimately she comes around with everything and says, <clears throat> that's, that was really sweet, even if it was dumb. And the only reason I say that is, is that this, this master looks and he goes, you know, if you really thought I was really that harsh, then your actions betray you. Because if you really thought I was that harsh of an individual, that austere of an individual, you would have done something with that. You would not have hit it. Your actions actually prove that you're lying. Now, whether you believe you're a liar or not is, is inconsequential. The bottom line is you're still lying. And it's still a lie. And you can sit around and do nothing forever and claim the world is your problem, but God's not buying it. You wicked and lazy servant. Look, and you really think that that's, you perceive this, this is your perception? Well then, look at, I remind you, the master knew this man's ability and he knew that at least he would have had the wherewithal to put it in the bank. So, you know, you could have just put the whole thing in the bank and you'd have been fine. At least I would have gotten interest. At least, look at, if you can't invest in this to bring forth a full to it, bring it someplace that can. Does that make sense? If you can't personally put your time into it to make this thing bear forth fruit, well then at least bring it somewhere where it can bear fruit. You would have received back this without, with interest. You could have brought this where something was really happening if you couldn't do it yourself. And he says, you know what, take that one talent, give it to the guy who has ten. Wait a minute. The guy who has ten, not the guy who had ten, does the guy that was five actually that was given five actually own the ten now? Did you notice that he says that? So here is he gave it to you, you invested, and as a result of it, he actually let you have it. And then he tells us this at the end: for everyone who has, for him more will be given, and he'll have an abundance. But him who doesn't have, even what he has will be taken away. And that sounds like some kind of weird thing you read in a fortune cookie. Until I realize the word has here is the word echo. And echo means to hold. And I get this. Because anyone who's willing to consciously really embrace this, you'll get more. But him who doesn't want to actually hold on, doesn't want to embrace the things that I put in front of you, take possession of, we might say, not even that will be gone from him. Before we get to the last verse, let me say this. Because as I'm walking with the Lord and I'm asking, Lord, bring this clarity to me. Help me to see what you want me to see in this. And he tells me something that just so rocks my world. Because he asks me, he goes, Tony, and he, we talk like this. You know, and he's like, what is really important? What's valuable to me? And I'm like, people. And he goes, why don't you put that in the equation? And I just remembered that the last equation that was done. Remember with the five virgins that served the master? Well, ten. That served the master by serving the bride. They served the master by investing in, in this bride. And what does he do here? He actually shows us what that would look like if we invested in the bride. Now, what would that be like as I look at this and I start to see what would happen is, let's say in this case, that what God did is he gave Bruno five people that he could invest in. Now, none of them are Brunos. They don't belong to Bruno. They were a gift from God on loan for Bruno to, to again, to, to invest in, to work, to work, to spend his time on with the purpose that they would ultimately bear fruit. 
Well, then you've got Shemar, and Shemar is given two people. Two people that have the privilege of the influence of friendship. For which then Shemar can look at and say, you know what? I'm going to spend my, I'm going to work that. I'm going to spend my time on them. That they would bear fruit. Not so that I would bear fruit. But that they would rise to a place where they could be productive. And then we go back to Deborah in this case, because we'll actually make her a good servant in this. But let's say Deborah has this individual or more than individual. I can tell you this. Deborah has one person I am sure of from the get-go because God gave her a husband. I would think that would be the number one guy, the number one person first. And then from there you work your way. I don't want to say work your way down because that's kind of weird, but you get the idea. Now look at what if, what if, what if I looked at every person from this point on and I saw them is an opportunity, a potential eternal opportunity of investment. What would that look like to me? When I looked at you, how would that change the way I view you? How would that change the way I view life? How would that change the way that I view the time that I have? Because I'm not going to have you forever. One way or another, sooner or later, one of us is going home first. Or the Lord's going to come and take us both and we can, we can wave in the air, but that's, we, I mean, our time is going to be limited regardless. But for the time that I have, how am I going to spend my energy on you? And the, at least as the Lord grants me, according to my ability, to serve you in a way so that you would ultimately bear fruit. Well, now here's the thing. We're aware of the fact that not every person we have really will take our influence. There's some people out there that they really kind of have their own thing to go on. And to be honest, we're going to kind of either get caught in their hurricane or we're going to get out of that. Well, what do we do? Can I just lovingly tell you, get the heck out and get to those that you can genuinely invest in, that God has really given you the blessing of influence. If you really can't really affect a person to the better, then let God bring you those who keep, that you can. Because the truth be told, in the end of it all, if I don't spend my time with the people, and look, at, there are three people, clearly, I could say that God's clearly given me three. And in blessing, he's given me you as well, at least for the time we have together, which I'm selfish with is one of the reasons I don't ever like to end. But at least three people that I know that bear my surname that I'm directly responsible for, and I'm, I realize I don't have all the, you know, I, I, I don't know which my wife or I will outlive each other, but I go with my children. I don't have them forever. And, and I know that at least with the time I have, am I investing? Am I working what I have? And to be honest, do I have the privilege of influence still with them? You know, you turn into a teenager, you become a mutant, and you don't hear like you used to. And you pray for that. And the only reason I say that is if the Lord were to come right now, would I boldly and joyfully come before the Lord and go, God, look at this is the wife you gave me, not like Adam, it's the woman you gave me, but the wife you gave me. And, and I just want you to know this is the fruit that's been born from it. And here are the children you've given me. And look, at I can only do so much. You know that you've given according to my ability, but I'm going to be in the word with them. I'm going to pray with them and I'm going to invest in them and try to be a godly dad. And I want them to see what it looks like so they don't have to get over the word father when they read it in scripture and give them love for the word and give them a love for your people. Oh, I really want that. 
And then there are the people that sit in the pews that I know by name because I look at you when I see your faces and I can tell you who you are. You know, and I look and I realize, I'm like, well, in the time that I have with them, have I given you the whole counsel of God? Have I really tried to model you know, what it really means to follow the Lord as a human being and to seek to be filled by God's Spirit and to love people and to love God like we should? Because in the end of it all, somewhere down the line, the Master is going to come. And when the Master is going to come, we're going to have to settle accounts. And sometimes, I'll be honest, I could try to play that same string forever that doesn't want to listen to me, where I could spend time with those that do. And I'm not trying to be mean. All I'm trying to tell you is that God wants us to know today that people are the investment. They're the thing that God gives us. And for whatever season we have that person, or people, or whatever, and let's face it, sometimes maybe you'll have more ability and you'll have a bigger posse to invest in. Sometimes it'll go down to this. But whatever it goes down to, the issue is not the size. The issue is, what are you doing with it? Are you ergotsamying it, if you will? Are you really just letting it get buried in the world? Because if I don't spend time on it, it's going to get buried in the world. For which, by the way, I would be two things, hurtful and lazy, neither of which ever farewell with the Master. What's amazing is we, and we'll bring this to close. What's amazing is we can get to this point where we genuinely think that we can do nothing and God's going to go, well done, good and faithful servant, but we haven't even served. I'm like, well, I'm a child of God. That's good enough. Look at the last verse. Verse 30. Hey, that guy that I gave him something he had no interest in holding on to, he had no interest in taking possession of just wanted to let it get buried in the world, get corpsed. He's an unprofitable servant. Cast him in outer darkness. I just think it's interesting. It's not just darkness. It never was in any of these cases. It was outer darkness. So he can't be dark where he is because he's the light of the world and we with him are as well issues that I'm being cast out of the relationship that I'd have with him otherwise, that I was invited, I could have been invited into. I could have been invited. And it wasn't just, hey, I'm, I'm joyful because of you, but he says, enter into the joy of your Lord. I mean, the idea is I want to invite you in to this house of joy where I'm the Lord and you get to be there and we get to be together forever. That's what I was created for, but now that's not what you want because instead he told us, by the way, in the first parable, they would point them with a portion with the hypocrites, the posers, the pretenders. And then we had the moronic virgins, if you remember, because the word foolish is moron, moros. And he says, well, I, wait a minute, what? Do I know you? I, I, I don't know you. Have we met? And they realize, outer darkness is the place that's so dark because what I'm really immersed in is regret. I mean, it truly is dark and it's truly full of fire and how those two work, I don't know. But when I really think about it, I'm like, would it be more important for me at a moment when I'm like this, where I could easily be selfish, to be like, well, as long as I'm okay, as long as I don't go there, I'm okay. But I couldn't imagine seeing the faces of my children or my wife look at me with that look to say, why didn't you tell me about this? You know, you were afraid of offending me then? Look at us now. I'm letting you know. Outer is not where you're intended to be. 
God is inviting you in. He sent Jesus to die on the cross so you wouldn't have to be out. We're born out. And the only way we get in is through the one way that Jesus says he is the way, the truth and the life. And nobody comes to the Father except through him. We all start out, out. But we all could be brought in through the blood of Jesus because he died for our sins, rose again from the grave, and he invites us then into a personal relationship with him. And all we really need to do is accept that, but be willing to take him as Lord and then let him give us abilities as he wishes and then give us the mission of people before us. So I want to pray a dangerous prayer as we bring this to close and pray. I could spend my life getting people to bend to me. Or I could be spent for others eternally. If people are the real investment, then all of my resources are only relevant means to that eternal end. I just want to pray for us that God would really rebuild a foundational paradigm in our walks with Him. You know, I mean, I, I, who wouldn't have 30 years ago wanted to buy stock in Apple when it was starting out? What it would have been worse as it grew to this thing. But you can give me every, sh- every stock of Apple and then some, and it would be worth nothing compared to the 18, 19 years, 19, 20 years that I've had to invest in my youngest, or my oldest, sorry, or the 12, 13 years that I've had to be able to invest in my youngest, or the 28 plus years that I've been able to invest in the oldest in the household. Because that stock only matures properly with investment. And I want to be able to be faithful to that. And I realized that even this morning, you guys, I'm just trying to be transparent. I really need to seriously revamp how I look at what really is an investment and what it looks like. Because you're the investment. Clearly God showed that with us, didn't he? You pray with me, please. So Lord, here we are. We've laid it before you. We've looked at this parable and no doubt it has very grim and very strong and stark consequences for the lazy, unprofitable, wicked servant. But it becomes so stark in contrast because we often don't see how great and amazing it is for the other two to enter into the joy of you, but to enter in. Not just report and go away, but to enter in. And so I pray today, Lord, for every believer in this room, myself included, that you completely rebuild from the foundation up that the truest investment in life are people. And we recognize there are going to be some people that we will not be able to invest in. There are people we could think we're investing in that we're not. So we ask for wisdom. And we ask a a dangerous prayer here. And I'm, I'm praying this not just for me, but for this fellowship. That those, Lord, that... May, we may think we're really getting through or people that we just really are making friends with or whatever, Lord, but they're really we don't have the privilege of genuinely being able to invest in them like we should. 
granted that may be because of their unwillingness to listen. Or somehow we found our dynamic to be one where we're really not the place where we should be with them. We'll either change it or get us out. Because Lord, what we really want is to be able to see who you set before us to invest in. Now granted, I know that in a marriage you'll keep marriages together. Families you'll keep families together. But you will still show us where and how to best use our time. And Lord, we ask your forgiveness for where we've really been lazy where we've been unconcerted but coincidental in our Christianity, and where we've not really taken hold of that which you've given us, the privilege of being able to invest in. So Lord, I pray for every one of us, myself included, change that now, please. Please change that. And here in this room right now, Lord, I just pray that we would recognize the gift you gave us, Father, by sending Jesus to die on the cross and raising again. And in that, it's more than just claiming Him as Savior. Believing that He died for us for our sins and rose again. But it also requires us genuinely to call Him Lord. Not like this third guy who said that, but then somehow in that Lord was an accusative tone, but rather in surrender. You are the Lord. So, Lord, purge us of the lies we would even tell ourselves. And I pray, Lord, you would de... Well, Lord, detox us from the lies and the temptations and the accusations that in any way we have nearly embraced or have embraced. Purge all of those things from us that our systems would be pure for you to love and invest and work you would call us to, to be those good and faithful servants that we really somewhere deep inside want to be. So Jesus, we define you in our lives as our Lord. And we surrender to your will. Make us yours completely. And may may we see people now as potential investments, each one. And for those that we have the privilege of honor or favor with, Make them the ones then that we spend our time investing in. And for those, Lord, we'll have the privilege of friendship with. Not just people that are recruiting us to something, but people who are willing to let us invest in them. And let them invest in us. Well, Lord, then give us wisdom on what another individual would invest in us. If they're investing lies or accusations or temptations or they're investing eternity. Lord, make it clear who is investing what and then let us choose our friends wisely and then make us the kind of friend that other people would choose wisely. As we hand ourselves to you, Lord, now, let us be those good and faithful servants you intend in Jesus' name. Amen.